0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Hour 2 of the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. If you are fortunate enough, if you could call it that, to catch the live broadcast, I have a running question that I would like to just kind of leave open and uh, ask, ask you to respond to. Throughout this hour, you can do so at 801-331-8113, 801-331-8113. The question is this, what have you learned from what we've gone through in the last few weeks, this whole coronavirus thing, the response, you know, I'm looking at the whole big aggregate experience. What have you learned that you didn't know a few weeks ago? You want to take a crack at it? I mean, there's no right, there's no right or wrong answer. I know that uh, I, I learned that uh, life can change a lot quicker than we think. I learned that government and the experts that it leans upon sometimes don't know as much as they pretend to know. I learned that a lot of people don't really understand what government is or how it operates, and that we could all stand to be a little more prepared to. Uh, to 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 stand for whatever, to, to be ready to meet whatever comes our way. Now, this could include a lot of different things, whether it's, you know, personal preparedness, whether it's uh, knowing how to stand effectively for your freedoms. It's been a pretty steep learning curve. So if you want to chime in, feel free. 801-331-8113. I saw an excellent commentary from a friend on Facebook. Katie Phipps Haig has this amazing essay on how to make sense, especially if the whole new normal thing, if you are tired of hearing people talk about, well, you know, the new normal is (laughs) we're going to have to do things like this. Masks are going to be required everywhere you go, blah, blah, blah. It it bugs me because I'm not yet willing to concede that, uh, oh yeah, this is how it's going to be. This is written in stone and thus it shall be. And there's nothing we can do about it. But she points out that there's a very unique opportunity and that is while a lot of people are looking at the new normal and trying to make sense of it, we have an opportunity to help people who have never really been exposed to freedom in the first place, see it for what it is. And granted, we're, we're working against a culture that has been uh, indoctrinating people for generations. You know, freedom is a scary thing. And uh, we, if it's not under the control of the state, well, by definition, it's out of control. That is the creed of statism. Listen to what she has to say. Maybe you can relate to this. The title of her piece is called When They Want a New Normal and You Want to Scream. I think most of us can relate to this at some level. Katie Phipps Haig says, Everywhere we look for what seems like forever, has it really only been a couple of months, we're bombarded with the new words and phrases endlessly repeated in media and politics and subsequently adopted by the masses. Things like, In this unprecedented time or social distance, or stay home, stay safe, alone, together. And she says, and in her opinion, the worst, new normal. She says, I saw a guy in a hat the other day that said, make Orwell fiction again. And you know what? It's true. The new normal that they want us to accept looks more like something out of 1984 than what we would have envisioned for 2020. All these new words and phrases are the epitome of Orwell's new speak. They all carry with them heavy other meanings and hints to their users level of fear, political leanings and trust in the CDC or the president. She says right now, words aren't just words. Everything means something else, at least to those of us who are paying attention. But not everyone is paying attention. Not everyone bristles at the new speak in commercials or news stories. Some people just adopt this new language without considering the motives of those who've crafted the narrative. Some people are just kind of rolling along with all of this without seeing a bigger picture or problem. In fact, she says, I suspect they think people like us are kind of crazy. She says, I've noticed something interesting as I've scrolled through social media or chatted with friends about the current state of the world and the perceived way forward. Something that has given me an insight into the fear many people feel, not in regards to any virus, but rather at the thought of taking true ownership of their lives without somehow being forced or compelled to do so. Now, Katie Phipps Haig says, although I have found the left-right divide that I expected to see, the left for the most part being more in favor of heavy-handed government solutions in the forms of, form of bailouts or stimulus or contact tracing, and the right showing slightly more concern for perceived civil liberties violations and the rights of people to work and worship. She says, I've been surprised to discover that a lot of the folks who have willingly adopted the vision of a new normal don't really have strong opinions on the more politically charged reasons that people either support or abhor these lockdowns and everything that comes with them. She says, from what I've observed in my wholly unscientific study, which consisted entirely of perusing social media threads and community pages, trying to get a feel for the current new normal vibe Is that a lot of people who want life to be divided into a pre and post COVID-19 way of doing things actually just really like working from home, having an excuse to commit to fewer engagements, having dinners every night as a family and having their spouse and kids around more. She says they're not fired up about being able to get back to work. They've used the lockdown for home improvement projects and their financial future feels relatively secure. They don't really care too much that rentals are opening up along the coast and they'll soon be allowed to travel or the fallout from the shutdown in the form of everything from skyrocketing food prices and possible shortages to devalued currency and inflation promise potentially life altering consequences for all of us. She talks about her friend Sarah, a realtor in a small town in Georgia, who took to social media the other day to share a gratitude post. And she wrote about all the reasons she was grateful for this shutdown and why she didn't ever want life to go back to normal. And Katie says, grateful for this shutdown? I couldn't even wrap my head around it. And yet here was my friend displaying some type of nostalgia for her state being shut down, even as it was just beginning to open. She says, I scrolled through all the I scrolled through the comments on her page, thinking surely I'd find some people pointing out all of the devastation and destruction of life and business and freedom that she neglected to mention or even notice. But she says, what I found instead shocked me. All of her friends were agreeing with her and even adding their own experiences and longing for life to never again go back to the way it was before. Now, Katie says, I know better than to wade into small town media social or social media debates, rather. So I just shook my head and moved along. But her post has stuck with me. And she says, I find I found myself frequently thinking back to it trying to figure out why she would have such a rosy view of what I see as one of the worst experiences ever. Now, Katie says, don't get me wrong. I love having my husband around more. It's been great to just not make plans or to be able to just not make plans instead of making plans and then trying to come up with a valid reason to cancel them when I really don't feel like doing my makeup. But she says, I understand how anyone could feel that things are, I can't understand rather that how anyone could feel that things are somehow better this way. But here's where it's interesting. She says, I think I finally made sense of it. See, I know that I own my life, even when the government does terrible things that make me feel like I'm literally trapped in my house. I unschool my seven children. I work from home for an organization that I love and whose mission means something to me. The life my husband and I have made for our family has been carefully crafted, often at great personal, professional, or financial sacrifice. And for the most part, I can say that no one else has a claim to our time or energy but us. Sure, we often choose to give ourselves over to things that we value. But we always know that anytime things aren't working well for us anymore, we can stop and make the needed adjustments in order to bring life back under our control. So, so she said, I took a moment to put myself into my friend Sarah's shoes. And I began to see why a lot of people perceive a return to normal with dread. The norm for Sarah and millions of families like hers involves spending every day, morning to night, beholden to someone else's timelines and expectations. By the time families finally come together in the evenings, everyone is exhausted, and homework and dinner haven't even happened yet. There are virtually unlimited numbers of sports and extracurriculars and clubs, and for whatever reason, a lot of families devote enormous amounts of time and energy and expense to making sure their children are in as many of them as possible. There are times when families are supposed to grow and bond and learn together. Those times it becomes times of stress and frustration and hurry. Meals are grabbed from a takeout window and gobbled down on the way to practice or rushed through so that hours of homework can be tackled before it gets too late. Because everybody has to be up early to catch buses and get out the door for work so it can all start over again the next day. Rinse, lather and repeat. Basically forever. No wonder a new normal sounds good. She says, many families are longing for calm and connection so badly, they're willing to sacrifice essential liberty to purchase a little peace. At least that's the way they've sold it to themselves. She says, what I think has really happened is that people are scared to death to acknowledge that they've been miserable and to take big and potentially scary steps in order to fix it. Okay, I'm going to stop here for a moment, but does that ring a note within you like it does with me? I mean, I want to believe everybody's a hard-charging lover of freedom, as I am, and, you know, probably sleeps wrapped up in the flag. But you don't? No. I kid, but can you see her point where this uh, this, uh, so-called new normal might actually be somewhat of an improvement from the hectic work-a-day life we were all used to? We'll come back and finish this up in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is the number. Just another quick excerpt here from uh, Katie Phipps Haig's article, When They Want a New Normal and You Want to Scream. And she's talking about how she saw friends who actually were saying, you know, this is kind of an improvement over how we were doing things before. And she said, possibly one of the reasons for this is because these are people who have never really been exposed to genuine freedom. She says it's a lot easier to say that the government forced you to become homeschoolers because the state shut the schools down than it is to face down your judgy PTA friends and confess that you actually hate handing your kids over to someone else for the most formative years of their life. It's easier to be forced to scale back your lifestyle because one partner's livelihood was suddenly deemed non-essential by state mandate than it is to face the questioning looks of neighbors and gossip of supposed friends when one of you quits your job and you decide be- to become a one-car family so that you can afford to stay home with your kids and craft the home environment your family longs for. If all the sports and after-school clubs are canceled, then you don't have to be the only ones who aren't participating. You don't have to feel like your kids are somehow outcasts. And her point here is, as she came to these realizations, she started to feel tremendous compassion for the Sarahs of the world. People, lots of people, don't want to go back to the way things were before an unseen authority forced them into their homes and away from many of their burdens and heartaches and choices. And she asks, is it so hard to see that they would come to see that, or to imagine rather, that they would come to see that authority as some sort of savior and even appeal to it to keep them locked into this new normal forever? Choice can be a heavy burden sometimes. That's an interesting take, isn't it? But it's totally plausible, or at least I, I think it's a very plausible take why some people are so eager to embrace this. Freedom takes responsibility. Responsibility is hard. There's risk. There's danger. You might make a wrong choice. So, yeah, it stands to reason. Let somebody else make all the difficult choices. And just, you know, do what you're told. And it takes a lot of that burden off your shoulders, you know, at a price. But I can see why that's appealing to some people. There was a time when it was appealing to me. But I got better. <laughs> Let's go to the phones. Sam is standing by in Missouri. Hi, Sam. Welcome to Loving Liberty.
1: Yeah, Brian. Um, yeah, see, I'm not like that at all. I've always been the kind of person that's always kind of bucked the system when I saw something that was not, that didn't smell right. And um, uh, here, here's the thing. Are there some good things that have come out of this potentially? Maybe maybe, but by the same token, uh, do we want to be micromanaged? Do we want to be uh, tracked and traced? Uh, The other thing that comes to mind is, why isn't anybody questioning the lingo used? The term, you know, I've I've always said that words mean things. And it seems like what everybody's missing, for example, is the term lockdown. I find that term appalling because, first of all, Lockdown implies a prison, you know, uh, and you know, being imprisoned. Okay, and as far as I'm concerned, I don't want to be somebody that you can just lock down at a whim. You know, that's not that's not me, and I hate that terminology because I know what it stands for. So I have a big problem with that. And so far, I've not heard a whole lot of complaints regarding that. And again, words mean things because you can kind of get an idea of uh, what the powers that shouldn't be your thinking when they come up with this terminology, social distancing the same way. Now, the one thing that I have said many, many times here, and I'll say it again, let us not complain. Then when the kids are so engrossed in their iPhones and their iPads that you can't get their attention for anything, because a couple of years ago, I was made aware of a story over in St. Louis regarding a couple who was so distressed over, um, Seeing these kids that just totally were oblivious to everything going on around them and just being stuck on their iPhones and their iPads, and so what they decided to do was was um, in the St. Louis area. They decided to um, to do what they could to try to entice kids to get out of the get out of this and, and 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 get out and start participating with other kids, playing in parks and different things with other kids. And what what I remember about this particular story that I um, that we ran across here a couple of years ago is that this couple had gone into a restaurant and this the kid was so engrossed in his iPhone or iPad, I can't remember which one it was, but it's one of the eye things, okay? That the parents were literally guiding him into the restaurant with his head to get him into the into the eating <laughs> establishment.
0: Ah, we've okay. all, we've all seen it though.
1: <laughs> yep. And I'm saying All right, before we start going down this road, let's not complain then because it seems like for everything we try to do to get the kids out of their devices and even some adults, for that matter, out of their devices, get their heads out of all this stuff, all this video screen stuff and all this kind of stuff, there's always somebody turning around and making it more difficult. Well, how does that happen? Well, one thing now all this video conferencing everything is going to now because we're so stupidly afraid to be out in public and i blame i blame a lot of people for this both in some businesses and um and as well as the public at large for this because um because everybody's so scared to death they're going to catch something and i still to this day i don't know anybody around here that's had this coronavirus that everybody keeps talking about and i'm saying okay then then if we're going to go down this road, then let's not gripe and complain when you see somebody aimlessly with their face in some thing not watching what they're doing. Remember when we agreed to all these lockdowns and this isolation stuff and everything else by the healthy, you know, for the benefit of a few, we agreed to this. So when these when you see these youngsters and various other people now who are so addicted to their video screens and stuff don't complain you allowed it to happen okay and i'm not saying everybody there's been some of us that have been calling it out and that kind of thing but i'm just saying those people who think that the that this was such a great idea because they were so afraid of the virus and i always i always come back to this one thing if they hadn't locked the country down i would never be talking about this much even today but Amen. Alarm bells and everything else went off, and I'm still calling it out, and I'm trying to get across to people, don't don't gripe and complain about these things. Are there some good things? Yeah, we had some good things here, Brian. We had some restaurants that delivered here for a while, and um, since my wife, Trish, and I don't drive, that was a great thing. But was it worth all of this to get that to happen?
0: Probably not.
1: And, and I say I don't think so. Are there some good things out of it? I see. So I've talked to uh, one waitress at one place where we ordered from. Who said she was keeping her kids out of the public schools, and going to start homeschooling them permanently. Um, that's fine as long as you watch the curriculum that you're getting. Because if you get the same curriculum that the schools were offering when they were in the school, then you haven't really solved anything other than just having them, you know, around you.
0: Sam, I'm you know. going to stop you here because I want to. I want to get in the last bit of Katie's article. But thank you for weighing in. And let's talk again soon. 801-331-8113. I love what uh, Katie Phipps Haig says here at the end of her article. And I'm going to post this with the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. One of the things that she is doing here, and I, I think this is a good idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to implement this myself. Set aside that normal fiery, fiery passion and principle over the next few weeks. And look for opportunities to help the people you encounter who are trying to find the courage to own their own actions and decisions instead of clinging to government as the guarantor of their happiness. She says, most of us didn't start out as Liberty minded as we are right now. A lot of people live in a world that doesn't look anything like the one we see. Most people are just doing the best they can for themselves and the people they love. And she says it would be a shame if we missed the chance to win hearts and minds because we misunderstood their motives and dismissed them with an okay, Karen, instead of helping them see the life they want through a lens of freedom and self-ownership rather than submission to imagined authority. And she says, then maybe we can agree to unlock the lockdown and make those choices for ourselves. Now, that's tough to do. And it's probably because I, you know, like a lot of people, I get my back up when I encounter the controlling types, the ones who are lecturing, ah, you will—you need to follow our dictates. <laughs> it's like, uh, now I can't because you are backing me into a corner and I resent that. But I think her point is well taken. A lot of people are off autopilot, maybe for the first time in their lives. Let's do what we can to show them some light and truth rather than scorn. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. If you'd like to join the conversation. If you're catching the podcast, that's cool too, but uh, you will get no answer at the phone. At the phone number, that is. Probably because I'm sleeping. Or otherwise engaged, helping in difficult tasks around the house. That's just the kind of guy that I am. All right, I, I want to throw a quick thought out here. Um, obviously, the uh, the death of, um, was it George Floyd. I believe that was his name. Um, Horrific. I've seen the video. I've seen the, you know, this was the guy in Minneapolis uh, who had, uh, by the way, not one officer, but uh, three police officers kneeling on him. Uh, One was kneeling on his neck though. The bystanders pleaded, you know, please. He's not struggling. He's not, he's not resisting. Take your knee off his neck. Can't you see he can't breathe? He can't breathe. And, Um, They got it all on film. They they got him, you know, slowly becoming unresponsive. I think the EMTs finally showed up after about eight minutes or so, went to take his pulse, loaded him up on a stretcher, and I believe he passed away on the way to the hospital. Ugly stuff. And what's uglier is it's become, you know, a, a racial issue. And I don't believe that that's necessarily, you know, an accurate representation. Well, the only reason that happened is because the officer was white and he was black. I promise you that stuff like this happens that involves people who are not of color and, you know, that uh, they, they find themselves on the receiving end of governmental force. And you see the same kind of indifference to suffering or or injury or sometimes death. And it has to do with that warrior mentality that is being trained into so many within law enforcement. Now, notice, this doesn't mean that every cop out there is, is murderous or looking for an excuse to get it on. This happens to be a particularly egregious example of someone who, in the course of doing his job, I mean, the, the, the thing that to me was most disturbing is the banality of what he was doing. The indifference I've done this a million times before. I'm just keeping this suspect down. You know, I think they originally were there to investigate him um, on an accusation of forgery. But the cop just had that look on his face. This officer was just, you know, it, it was no big deal. There was no anger. There was no passion. It was just, I'm just doing my job with my knee on this guy's neck, ignoring his protests. his pleading his groans. But that's, you know, that's part of the training. You know, it's bring it under control. Keep it under control. I can tell you this, turning it into a racial crusade does not help. And I think that this is largely a product of the media, which for, for some odd reason seems to really relish the idea of keeping us, you know, divided along ethnic or racial lines. They just really dig that. Maybe they want a race war. I don't know. But the looting and the the carnage that was taking place in Minneapolis for the last couple of days isn't helping. It's funny, I saw, it was uh, what is her name, Shannon Watts? She's the the founder of Moms Demand Action, you know, the gun control group. And she's saying, well, look at all these extremists that showed up in Virginia armed to the teeth. and, And the police didn't use rubber bullets or tear gas or anything on them. And I'm like, really, are you so tone deaf you can't see the difference between... Peaceful, yet armed people standing up for their natural rights and by extension, everyone else's natural rights by demanding that government respect its limits versus an enraged mob destroying everything it can get its hands on. I mean, if you can't see the difference there or if if your ideology blinds you to that, I don't know what I could say that would help. But it's not just apples and oranges, it's, it's pancakes and dolphins, for crying out loud. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Brian? Hello there.
2: Yeah. Anyway, that last lady you talked about there on the racial matter, uh, you think about it, uh, Carl Isleby wrote that book, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. And there's getting to be a lot of poster children for that <laughs> uh, uh, situation. But anyway, I, I called in because of your earlier comments on Operation Cold Feet. And I, uh, that kind of tells you right there where I uh, stand on a lot of this, Brian. Wait, Operation uh, Cold Feet? No. I, I did not say that. I said Operation COVID 19. COVID, gotcha. Florida. Okay. I was like, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. in the dark
0: here. I'm in the dark here. You're going to have yeah, to clue me yeah. in.
2: Yeah, no, you know what the operation I'm talking about. It's COVID-19 and uh, what they're trying to accomplish with it. There's no doubt about it. This is what they could not do with 9-11. They could not do with uh, the killing of John F. Kennedy and different uh, false flags, real flags, operations, what have you, Brian. They're doing it with this, or they're at least going to go for broke trying with it. Uh, They couldn't get rid of Trump early on. Now they think they've got him blackmailed into going along with it, and he has in some respects... It could be uh, so that the people uh, on the the genuine hard left um, are exposing themselves. Uh, The governors in these states here, particularly Inslee in Washington state, who seems to be working. um, I don't know if you know about his strong ties with Bill Gates. And that's where I'm coming in on this. Uh, Brian, I think I brought this up to you once before. Did you uh, check out John Rappaport?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with Rappaport.
2: There you go. He was formerly CBS. They wouldn't let him in through the back door today, as you might suspect. Uh, people can reach him at no more dot com. But where I uh, my thrust of my point is this: uh, there are people, and I think you know about libertybeacon. dot com. Uh, I'm throwing out these websites, but these are real organizations. Brian, the Liberty Beacon uh, has Roger Landry. He's former uh, military-industrial complex, uh, complex by his own admission. Former naval officer uh, Roger Landry and others who were involved uh, with others who were involved with the militias of the 1990s are having some serious talks right now because uh, Brian uh, uh, Bill Gates is serious. He said so in the TED talks. Uh, this was predicted in 2010 in the Rockefeller Foundations. You can check it out. They published it called Lockstep. It was like the PNAC document was to 9/11. Lockstep mm-hmm. talked about a pandemic in 2020. They predicted it because they knew they were going to run an operational like this. Just like Mike Pompeo said, you did hear his words about the live exercise, didn't you, Brian?
0: Uh, no, I didn't.
2: Okay, you can't go to Bing or YouTube, or excuse me, uh, Google or Bing uh, 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 or uh, YouTube. Only Bing has it. Uh, you just type in live exercise, Mike Pompeo, uh, mid-March, one minute and five seconds, and you will see him and what was thought to be off Camera, or excuse me, off microphone, Donald Trump's reaction, it's uh, it pretty much says it all. But when you put this together with Operation COVID to use contact tracing, which is just using COVID as a cover for uh, 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 surveillance, I mean, human surveillance, forget just uh, a national ID, this is that on steroids, Brian. Oh, I get that.
0: I, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree either. That uh, right, this right. this contact tracing is setting the stage for yep. uh, for the digital panopticon that all of us are going to find ourselves living in wondering how the heck did that happen?
2: You got it. And they can they can put uh, certain aluminum in this coming vaccine that Bill Gates wants. And you've got to remember, I cheered Donald Trump for defunding the World Health Organization. But 11 percent of their funding comes from the wallet of Bill Gates. And Bill Gates' boy is at Washington Governor Inslee, who was Bill Clinton's health and human Secret- uh, health secretary, and worked with uh, FEMA and different health groups. His chief of staff is on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That's why he's keeping Washington a Western state up in the Northwest, continue to lock it down like it was Connecticut or New York you know, running those states. What we have here is a true operation right out of the mouth of Mike Pompeo, to the dismay of Donald Trump. Yeah, you may want to look at that. It's okay. killing. A minute and five seconds.
0: I appreciate you bringing this to my attention, and and thank you for your passion on this as well. 801-331-8113. By the way, I have a question here, too. And this goes along with the, the running question that I have of what have you learned from the uh, you know coronavirus situation? But this is the question. Will politicians admit their lockdown mistake. Now, this this takes us out of the realm of, you know, who's conspiring to do what. When are we going to hear a politician offer even the most tepid mea culpa for the shutdowns, for all the suffering and all the injury that has been caused? And I have to say, we're, we're on the beginning edge of, or at least we're still on the leading edge of, of whatever harm is coming. I mean, look at the, what is it, 41 million? Maybe it's up to 44 million jobless claims now. People who are unemployed officially because of these shutdowns. Eviction notices are going to start being enforced here within the next few days. Businesses are closing their doors for good. I mean, we we are only seeing the very tip of the iceberg. When we come back from our break. There's a great article from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. Which uh, which poses the question, will the politicians admit their lockdown mistake? He makes a very strong case for why they should if they want to continue to be trusted. Otherwise, you and I should feel absolutely no shame whatsoever in uh, regarding whatever their pronouncements are, whatever their promises are with roughly the same degree of gravitas and, you know, the, the same degree of credibility that we would give a particularly shady used car salesman. My apologies to used car salesmen for lumping you in there with the politicians. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Final segment of the show today, and I want to share with you this commentary from Jeffrey Tucker. Will politicians admit their lockdown mistake? I'm not, you know, I'm not calling for heads on pikes or anything like this. I don't think people should be throwing trash at them everywhere they see them. But it would be nice to at least have someone in a position of authority or leadership step up and say, I'm really sorry we got this wrong. Don't hold your breath, though. Jeff Tucker says, see if you can make sense of the following transcript of an interview with Donald Trump on, lo- on the lockdown, as conducted by Cheryl Atkinson. President Trump says, so I was hearing millions of people and it would have been millions of people if we didn't shut down. Now, would I shut it down again? No, because we understand it now much better. We didn't know anything about it. It was new. It was fresh. Cheryl says, you mean you would not have, in retrospect, shut down the, and the president interrupts her, I would have done exactly. We've done ex- the exact moves I would have done, and I did it early. Tony Fauci, Dr. Burks, they all said I, what I did was incredible. And in retrospect, Tony, you know, never thought he was, going to be, he was going to be as severe as it was. We're talking about months later, a long time after I did the ban. I did a ban, and nobody thought I should do it. I mean, literally, I don't think anybody thought I should do it. I made that decision by myself, and it turned out to be a great decision. Hundreds of thousands of lives are saved. All right, so Jeff Tucker says, well, which is it? I get all po- that all politicians are impervious to admitting error, much less expressing contrition. And it's not just Trump. I've heard some version of this story from experts at all levels who both pushed the lockdown, but now say it was a mistake, but a mistake that somehow had to be made. Because what else can you do? Well, he says one thing you could do in the absence of information, one could default to preserving human dignity, freedom and the rule of law and then get to work gathering information. Instead, this one went the other way, shut down the whole of society simply because of uncertainties. Are freedom and foundational principles, luxuries in which we indulge and permit only under the right conditions. Do our rights exist only by permission of the state such that they can be blotted out under any pretense? Now, he says, you might say that a new virus in absence of testing is a rare exception. The trouble is that is incorrect. A century of history in the U.S. is replete with new viruses and tests have not always been available, much less universal. Plus, the real record here demonstrates that a cautery of high-end experts had been waiting 14 years to deploy their experiment in a new paradigm for dealing with disease. In every other pandemic, the politicians stayed out and government left the economy alone. We trusted individuals and medical experts to deal with the problem, and it worked. Only this time did we flip the other way, and it will likely be years before it is universally admitted to be a catastrophic error. Now, there's also a psychological element here, fueled by media pressure. Jeff Tucker says early on, a friend of his compared the panicked lockdowners to new residents of coastal towns during hurricane season. The media always and everywhere declares every hurricane to be the mother of all storms. They scream and yell for everyone to run and hide, go somewhere, anywhere but there. Then the storm changes direction, which provides another excuse for a news update, telling more people to freak out and run for their lives. No one knows for sure what the storm will be like or where it will land. It usually takes a couple of years for new residents to realize this. Discount what the media is yelling. Be cautious, but remember that risk assessment is difficult. Mostly, there is likely no good reason to spend the days boarding up your house and then heading for the hills, given that the hurricane hurricane could hit the hills, too. In other words, it takes a bit of time to become rational about these things. But eventually, everyone in coastal towns does. And he says, what about those who spend weeks boarding up the house, thousands of dollars on food and freezers, and then days driving around with family in tow, running from something that never materializes into anything but a bit of wind and rain? Now, the right answer is that all of this was a mistake, clearly, but that's not usually the answer you get. Instead, the panicked person will usually say, well, I did what I had to do, given the information I had. And so, yes, if I had to, the information that I had, and if I had to do it again, yes, I would. I would do exactly the same thing. This is, of course, completely irrational since there was no severe weather, rather, and this is a known fact. Still, the pull of that sunk cost fallacy to provide ex-post rationales for irrational behavior is a powerful thing. And this problem now afflicts thousands of politicians in America. Much of the preposterous rituals we're going through, these distancing restrictions, mask mandates, occupancy limits, and so on, are nothing but imposed protocols to give the impression that it is a very dangerous and virus-infected world out there. So the lockdown was correct, even if the virus turned out to be almost nothing at all for 99% of the public. He says it would be similar to a mayor who irrationally ordered an evacuation for a half inch of rain to later order returning residents to wear rubber boots and eye goggles for a month. It's a way of spreading and sharing fear to deflect from the egregious errors of the mayor himself. It's ex post justification for coercing people pointlessly but trying to avoid blame. We didn't know anything about the storm, so we did the right thing. By the way, just as a quick aside here, Paul Rosenberg called it early on in all of this lockdown and shutdown mentality. Politicians will say we had no choice, but the truth is they saw no other choice. But to exercise powers that really weren't theirs to exercise, to take command and control, to start implementing central planning at every possible turn, They had choices. And the whole do nothing doesn't mean that therefore nobody could do anything. It might just be that uh, recognizing this is not a place for government to step in and say, your business is essential. Yours isn't. You have to stay shut down. You're okay, but only under these conditions. How do we know it would have worked? Well, I don't know. Let's look at some of the countries that didn't do these hard lockdowns. Japan, South Korea, Sweden. How are they doing? How did they fare? They're not exactly the, uh, you know, leper colonies that we were told they would become. All right, back to Jeff Tucker. He says, so we will see this continue. We will continue this opening up kabuki dance for several more months, simply so that politicians and those who panicked among us can save face and avoid admitting error. And yet daily, the evidence pours in of the calamity. The latest calculations of loss reveal wreckage far beyond that, from deaths of, of, of the deaths from COVID-19. Authors Scott W. Atlas from the Hoover Institution, John R. Burge from the University of Chicago, Ralph L. Keeney from Duke University and University of Southern California, and Andrew Alexander Lipton rather from Hebrew University together wrote that the past century has witnessed three pandemics with at least 100,000 U.S. fatalities. The Spanish flu, 1918 to 1919, with between 20 million and 50 million fatalities worldwide, including 675,000 in the U.S. The Asian flu, 1957 to 1958, with about 1.1 million deaths worldwide, 116,000 of those in the U.S., and the Hong Kong flu, 1968 to 1972, with about 1 million people worldwide, including 100,000 in the U.S. So far, the current pandemic has produced almost 100,000 U.S. deaths, But the reaction of a near-complete economic shutdown, they say, is unprecedented. The lost economic output in the U.S. alone is estimated to be 5% of GDP, or $1.1 trillion, for every month of the economic shutdown. This lost income results in lost lives as the stresses of unemployment and providing basic needs increase the incidence of suicide, alcohol or drug abuse, and stress-induced illnesses. And these effects are particularly severe on the lower income populace as they're more likely to lose their jobs and the mortality rates are much higher for lower income individuals. Now, there's much more here uh, statistic wise that Jeff Tucker goes into. In addition to the lives lost because of lost income, you also see lives lost due to delayed or foregone health care imposed by the shutdown and the fear it creates creates among patients. From personal communications with neurosurgery colleagues, about half of their patients have not appeared for treatment of disease which, left untreated, risk brain hemorrhage, paralysis, or death. He's got a lot of stats in this story. And here's what he asks. He says, so in conclusion, was this a mistake? And his answer is yes, and it's time to admit it. There ought to be acts of contrition from the political class and the modelers who advise them in which they loudly and earnestly declare that they are heartily sorry for their sins. Mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. But I ask you, do you think it's going to happen? Probably not. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, for one thing, why don't we stop leaning on them as if they really are our saviors and hold the answers to everything that we must know about how and where and under what circumstances we can resume our lives? Consider going to usbusinessrevival.com. Consider joining us this coming Saturday at the amphitheater out in Grantsville. I think you're going to find it's going to be a great time. Colin Ray is going to put on a heck of a concert. There will be hundreds of businesses out there that uh, will be there to conduct commerce. Meet your needs. You can get together with friends and family. Bring a lawn chair. It's a free event. And yes, there are some in authority who say this should not be happening. That's okay. When they can tell us mea culpa, maybe we'll give them a little more credibility.